0: Straight Talk from Israel.
1: You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. And now, here is Walter Bingham. Hello and welcome to the program. It's Tuesday the 20th of September 2022, or in the Hebrew calendar, the 24th of Elul 5782. I am Walter Bingham. Together with the people of Britain and the rest of the world, we are mourning the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. The Queen was unique and an inspiration to the world. She devoted her life to public service, regardless of the politics of the 14 Prime Ministers whom she has advised in their weekly meetings during the 70 years of her reign. As Israel's President Isaac Herzog wrote in the book of condolences at the British Embassy, quote, she was a symbol of stability and a beacon of morality in the service of her subjects. Surprisingly, just over a day before her death, she received and invited the 15th British Prime Minister to form a government. The feature item in today's program is an investigation into the deception of the Green Revolution and associated phasing out of fossil fuels. You will also hear my earnest appeal to save our country from moving further towards destroying what took us 74 years to rebuild. But I begin with this. The members of Israel's government should command the respect of the nation and be role models for the population. Unfortunately, they fail on both accounts. It has become apparent on many occasions that their interests lie first and foremost in feathering their own nests to reach or maintain powerful positions instead of concentrating their efforts to work in the interests of the nation. Let's take the case of Ayele Chaket. This woman, who many of us once thought to be worthy of support, has fallen from grace when she showed her real colors, behaving like a weather vane, foregoing her declared principles and changing political affiliations to suit herself by joining a government with a balance of power held by the Arab Ram Party. Now, she once again stands on her own, a victim of her own manipulations, and has accepted a lifeline thrown her by the Jewish Home Party that she does not deserve. Ayelet Chaket cannot be trusted. Then there is our current finance minister, Aviktor Lieberman, a product of Soviet education, who spent his first 20 formative years learning the modus operandi that is influencing his policy today. His motto is, I am right and what I say goes. Whoever does not agree with me is the scum of the earth, as he called former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, one of his former colleagues filed a court case against him for having been requested to kill an opponent. Thank God that Lieberman cannot just make his opponents mysteriously disappear or poison them with Novichok nerve agent. It is astonishing that Prime Minister Lapid did not dismiss Lieberman on the spot for using such uncalled for and insulting language, or at least publicly reprimanded him and requested him to withdraw his remark. Well, that says as much about the Prime Minister as it degrades Lieberman and devalues anything he says or does. And that gives me the opportunity to once more appeal to the right-wing voting public. We all have our high ideals that are represented by one or another small party, but experience in recent years has shown that if we repeat our voting pattern, We shall not attain those ideals. We would slide further into the destructive postmodern culture where anything goes. In this forthcoming election, we must put aside our natural inclination to vote according to our heart and we must instead vote tactically and vote for the largest party, that's Likud, to enable Benjamin Netanyahu to form a majority government able to fulfill its declared aims. If you want a government that considers Israel as a sovereign state and not a province of Biden's America, a government that will annex the Jordan Valley, if you want a government that will stop the illegal expansion of Arabs in the Negev, a government that will allow our expanding families to build homes in Judea and Samaria and will hold the land-grabbing activities of the Palestinian Authority in Area C, that's financed by the European Union, a government that will work towards declaring Judea and Samaria an integral part of sovereign Israel, then you should vote Likud. And most of all, if you want a government that can and will effectively deal with the existential threat posed by Iran, then you must ensure that Netanyahu and Likud win this election decisively. Dear brothers and sisters, I really understand your loyalties to the parties that you have always supported. I am one of you, but I have learned that these are extraordinary times – We must prevent Israel's political left to be once again beholden to the Arab parties who use their votes to blackmail the government in achieving their aims. I want us to achieve our aims to ensure that Israel retains the character of a Jewish state promoting Torah values and it will therefore also be my first time of voting Likud. The British entrepreneur Richard Branson once said, only a fool never changes his mind. Now to the feature item. The world is being deceived into believing that fossil fuels can be phased out and that this would provide a greener environment. Well, I have my doubts, so let's examine the facts. The best example is California, which has legislated to end the sale of gasoline-driven cars in 2026, so that by 2035 only electric cars will be on the roads. Sounds good, doesn't it? On the surface, yes, but when one looks at the implications, the hoax soon becomes apparent. The general idea is that there will be no more mining of expendable minerals That will harm our environment, right? But the main constituents of electric car batteries are lithium, cobalt and nickel. They are minerals and have to be mined. The battery of a Tesla Model S, for example, uses around 12 kilos of lithium. Not to mention the world's mobile electronic devices like laptops and telephones, etc., The countries with the major deposits of lithium are Chile, Argentine, Australia and China, most with regimes that are unpredictable. You can draw your own conclusions. Today there are more than 14 million cars registered in California and even if this number would not increase by 2035 and they are all electric, Imagine the number of batteries required. What happens to them at the end of their useful life? Will the residue go back into the ground and pollute the water tables? And where does the power for the mining of the minerals come from? It does not seem to matter to those who shout loudest against fossil fuels that electricity production in China relies 65% on coal, in Argentine 60% and that Chile's renewable energy amounts to just 11.4%. Hence, I quote the words of Israel's environmental protection minister, Tamar Sandberg. a solution that is meant to solve one problem by creating other problems is not a real solution. So how can we solve this problem? Oh, I know, wind turbines. You've seen pictures of them scattered about the landscape. Those tall towers with large propellers. Most onshore wind turbines in the U.S. have a capacity of up to 2.75 megawatt. And that sounds good, until you realize that according to U.S. Energy Information Administration, the average household in the United States uses about 9,000 600 kilowatt hours per year. Just imagine how many of these monstrosities would be needed to service just one town. But even so, their output depends only on the wind. Without wind, it's like a bicycle that nobody rides. It's available, but not spinning. To be realistic, wind turbines will not be the only source of electric power. There is also solar and nuclear. Now just imagine that most electric car drivers will want to plug in their batteries at the end of the day to be fully charged for the next day's work. That in addition to the usual domestic and industrial demand on the grid during the evening hours. It will become overloaded and result in regular outages. In Israel, the advantages of wind power are relatively negligible compared to the potential for harm to nature, which is high. And here I repeat the words of Israel's Environmental Protection Minister, Tamar Antberg, in order to minimize the percentage of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and prevent continuation of global warming, we must make sure that we are not harming nature. A solution that is meant to solve one problem by creating another problem is not a real solution. A key challenge facing the wind industry is the experience that turbines adversely affect wild animals, both directly via collisions as well as indirectly due to noise pollution and reduced survival or reproduction. Among the most impacted wildlife are birds and bats, which by eating destructive insects provide billions of dollars of economic benefits to the country's agriculture. Currently, Israel has about 50 operating wind turbines, mainly in the Golan Heights and in the Emek area in the north. The National Infrastructure Council has given the green light for the erection of seven new mega-wind turbines that will tower over the Golan at the height of around 200 metres, even taller than Tel Aviv's cylindrical Azriela Tower. The reaction of these individual solar or wind plants are localised, time- and weather-dependent events. Is their construction therefore sensible when in the current political climate in the Golan they would be an easy target for the enemy? As part of God's creation, the sun is the source of all life. The amount of sunlight that strikes the earth's surface in an hour and a half is enough to handle the entire world's energy consumption for a full year. There are several methods to harness this renewable source of energy. In Israel... It is usual for most homes to install a solar-heated water system on the roof, consisting of a solar panel and water tank. As hot water is drawn from the top of the tank, cold water flows in from the bottom. One can also cover the roof of the house with panels that will convert the sunlight into electricity to run the house. Any surplus can be fed into the national grid and produce financial credit. Very simply explained, to use solar energy commercially, fields of panels have to cover large area of land, absorbing the energy and automatically beam it to a central point of a tower where the conversion process takes place. Here too, the blight on the landscape to satisfy national demand would far exceed tolerable levels. Then there is nuclear power which opponents call an accident waiting to happen or, as its supporters claim, is the solution to clean renewable energy. And that brings me back to California and its administration's naive ideals. Their last nuclear plant was scheduled to be fully shut down by 2025 and it's been given renewed life for another five years after the governor warned that the state could face rolling blackouts if its twin reactors were retired too soon. So has California bitten off more than it can chew? How will it satisfy the increased demand for electricity? Well, by natural gas, which provides the largest portion of the total in-state capacity and electricity generation in the state, Already they have to import 95% of its natural gas via interstate pipelines from the southwest, the Rocky Mountains and Canada. The increased economic burden will be incalculable. But there's more. By implementing their carbon-free solution, they are creating a near-economic disaster. Just think of the implications. All gas stations have to close many thousands will be added to the unemployment figures. To compensate for the lost gas tax revenue, electricity tax will increase an additional burden on the poor and non-car owners. Then there are the millions who rely on their older cars and cannot afford to lose them and far less pay for a new electric vehicle. Oh, and the owner-drivers of taxis to mention just some effects of the Green Revolution. I'm sure that you can think of several more. It's interesting that the movement for environmental protection is selective in its application. To what extent should Israel be required to take part in the effort to halt global warming and save the environment? The Georgetown Journal of International Affairs describes Israel's discovery of natural gas fields in the eastern Mediterranean offshore areas as having moderated the country's total dependence on energy imports. Israel's crude oil production is minuscule and there are no known coal reserves. Oil demand in Israel, especially in the transportation sector, is met by imports which make it vulnerable to the vagaries of global oil supply. Crude oil constitutes about 50% of Israel's total oil imports, and natural gas, however, has provided a potential solution to Israel's energy security concerns. It has become the fuel of choice in electricity generation and has crowded out coal as the dominant energy source. The Israel Electric Company, the IEC, owns and operates 15 stations with 52 generating units, of which 16 are steam-driven, 25 are gas turbines, and 11 are combined cycle units. Steam-driven turbines require the burning of fuel, such as coal, petroleum, fuel oil, or combustible waste. Gas turbines heat a mixture of air and gas at very high temperatures, causing the turbine blades to spin, rather like a jet engine. The spinning turbine drives a generator that converts the energy into electricity. There are, of course, several types of gas turbines and the most efficient is the combined cycle power system that uses gas turbine to drive an electric generator and recovers waste heat from the turbine exhaust to generate steam, The steam is then run through a steam turbine to provide additional electricity. A double whammy. The country also has three independent power stations, all run on gas. Apart from providing vital energy security, Israel hopes that its offshore gas resources can serve as a diplomatic tool to improve relations with its Arab neighbors, that shared economic benefits through gas trade will promote cooperation with regional countries and mitigate conflicts that have long informed the political landscape of the region. Israel is preparing a master plan for 2050, which will serve as a basis for planning the economy. The plan will examine, from the broad and long-term perspective, the entire range of considerations and will determine Israel's energy policy, including the mix of energy sources in line with her international commitments, in particular the Paris Agreement to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and limit the global temperature increase to below 2 degrees Celsius, 3.6 Fahrenheit, above pre-industrial levels by the year 2100. But in the medium term, there is no need for Israel to commit to the large investment needed to phase out the use of fossil fuels to convert the complete transport sector to electric power and put a large burden of taxation on the population. Our percentage of air pollution is minuscule compared to China's, which is 437 times larger than Israel and at this moment is constructing new coal mines. Russia is 779 times the size of Israel and supplying its satellites with oil. Even Biden's United States is still mining coal. Because Israel's impact on a greener world would be extremely small, she is justified to wait for the superpowers to lead the way. Anti-Semitism is a pervasive ill that permeates all facets of society and daily life. As we are well into the 21st century, some 77 years since the gruesome details of the Nazi-perpetrated Holocaust came to light, we are again seeing new echoes of active Jew hatred in its worst forms. In an effort to educate the world of the meaning of antisemitism, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, IHRA, has formed this working definition. Antisemitism is a certain perception of Jews which may be expressed as hatred toward Jews. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of antisemitism are directed towards Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and or their property, towards Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. Among the eleven examples of antisemitism that accompany the definition, seven relate to Israel. To date Just 35 countries have signed up to and adopted the IHRA definition. Among some NGO signatories is the first ever airline, the German flag carrier Lufthansa. That was triggered by a recent unfortunate incident when some members of a group of Hasidim boarded a flight from New York to Budapest and refused to wear masks and behave orderly. They were offloaded, But so were also other Hasidic passengers, unconnected with that group. And anti-Semitic comments by airline staff were recorded. The airline has apologized. You wouldn't believe it possible, but it's really happening. Today, one can buy wine with large labels on the bottle displaying a picture of Hitler and Nazi slogans. The wines are produced by the Lunardelli Winery, located in Frioli, Venezia, Giulia, in northern Italy. The series that featured dictators and fascist figures such as Francisco Franco and Joseph Stalin was first introduced in 1995. They now boast more than 37 different labels featuring dozens of Nazi slogans, such as Ein Volk, ein Reich, ein Führer, one people, one empire, one ruler, Sieg Heil, and der Prosecco vom Führer. Of course, these Adolf Hitler wines, as they are called, cannot be sold in most European countries, including Germany and Austria, which have stringent laws prohibiting the sale of products or memorabilia, celebrating Nazism. But the bottles are sold in supermarkets across Italy and are available online and are very popular with German tourists. Germany's Jewish Forum for Democracy and Against Antisemitism has intervened in the past, trying to stop the sale of the wines, stating that The marketing strategy is disrespectful to all victims of the Nazi regime and their descendants. The Jewish Telegraphic Agency reported that the heir to the winery, Andrea Lunardelli, who expects to take over in early 2023, told an Italian newspaper, we are sick and tired of all this controversy and will be putting a cork in this historical series of wines next year. They represented a nice joke because Hitler was well known as a teetotaler. End of quote. It now remains to be seen if the new management will fulfill its promise. Since 1765, Great Britain's Jewish community has been served by a chief rabbi. There have been eleven to date. Some died in office, others retired. In my lifetime, I have seen five. The longest serving was Joseph Hertz, who was appointed in 1913 and died in 1946. Rabbi Emmanuel Jakubowicz served with great distinction, was knighted by the Queen in 1981 and became a life peer in 1988. Lord Jakubowicz died in 1999. He was succeeded by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. More than his predecessors, Rabbi Sachs was steeped in secular and Jewish philosophy, wrote 25 books, and his articles on the weekly Torah readings are reprinted in several magazines. In short, his teachings are quoted by many rabbis in their sermons. Here is just one that stands out for me. To build a society of freedom, you have to let go of hate. It was in 2005 when Queen Elizabeth II bestowed a knighthood on Rabbi Sachs, and in 2009 he was elevated to the life peerage. Ever since then, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs has become an icon, a fountain of knowledge among Jews and indeed the wider world. This year's second annual Sachs Conversation took place at the residence of Israel's President. The Great Hall was packed with several hundred British expats and personalities who have flown in specially to honour the memory of Rabbi Sachs. In her opening remarks, the trustee of the Rabbi Sachs legacy, Michal kotler said, It is a humbling honor and an awesome responsibility to continue the journey equipped with Rabbi Sachs's legacy. This year's conversation was between the President of the State of Israel, Isaac Herzog, and Dr. Eric Brown, Director of the Sachs-Herenstein Center for Value and Leadership at Yeshiva University, which is recorded on YouTube. The event was honored by the presence of Lady Elaine Sachs, who spoke the closing remarks. It was a privilege to be present. Being on the staff of Arut Sheva, I naturally read the bulletins of our news service, Sometimes an item stands out and resonates with me. That happened last week when I read how Rabbi Nachman Kahana related his encounter with a group of tourists from Texas in the old city where he lives and heads a congregation. Following some polite conversation, he was asked, Are you Jewish? He replied, No, I am not Jewish. Let me explain. A piece of cloth, which is not really red, but tends to be so, is called reddish. If it tends to be blue, it's called bluish. You see, I am not Jewish, with emphasis on the last syllable. I am a Jew. I do hope that my weak memory will allow me to retain this wonderful story. And with that, I've come to the end for today. Until the next time, this is Walter Bingham wishing you a meaningful month of Elul. And as we are nearing the Jewish High Holy Days, many of our elderly citizens who live apart from their family will be sad or even depressed. So it is important that you check on your elderly neighbor or even invite them to your table. You cannot imagine what that would mean to them. Goodbye.
0: Howdy, this is Rita from League City, Texas, now living in Israel. And though my heart may have belonged to Texas, it now belongs to Israel and all the fantastic show hosts at Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, this
1: is Michael Solomon from Kiryat Darba, Israel. And why do I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio? Because I love listening to the interesting interviews they do and their news reporting that most other media sources don't cover.